This is hell. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. And that is one of my favorite taglines that we've been using on the show of over the last couple of years. And it was inspired by today's guest, who is making his fifth appearance since the pandemic began back in early 2020. We learned that capitalism was the virus or the driving force behind it from the person we will be speaking with in a few minutes. It's not like he came up with this idea on his own. It's something people in his line of work, epidemiology, have been saying for since at least 2003 with the outbreak of the first pandemic of the 21st century, severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS. And as you may know, SARS like COVID are both coronaviruses. COVID is caused by our dependence on a system that creates and nurtures an environment made perfectly suitable for spreading diseases by having contact with viruses that were once safe from us, but are now being released through deforestation. Today, we welcome back listener favorite epidemiologist, evolutionary epidemiologist, Rob Wallace, author of the new book, The Fault in Our SARS, COVID-19 in the Biden Era. Rob is an evolutionary epidemiologist with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. Rob has consulted with the Food and Agricultural Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Last year, The Nation magazine called Rob the unemployed epidemiologist who predicted the pandemic. Follow Rob on Twitter, at Farming Pathogen. Find Rob's writing at the Pandemic Research for the People website, prepthepeople.net. And support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber to his Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is our new Monday producer, Lindsay Gorey. But it's on a Tuesday this week because I was not feeling great yesterday. Still not 100%. I'll talk to you about that in a moment. How exciting was your weekend, Lindsay? I don't remember. I, I don't remember. <laughs> it was too I was, long ago. You were th- I was thinking about Monday, which was yesterday. So what I, happened on Monday? I was just like, well, I guess it's not Monday anymore. We're not doing the show. And then I realized I didn't... I didn't post anything. You didn't post anything. No. So we were out of it. Sorry if you worried. Chuck died. <laughs> it didn't. I, I'm close, <laughs> but not that far. So I had a pretty good weekend. Uh, that is until I inexplicably woke up at a little after five in the morning on Monday and felt like I had a fever. I took a hot shower, and the entire time I was in the hot shower, I was freezing. I was like shivering under steaming hot water. When I got out, I was uh, quaking and my teeth were chattering like some sort of wind-up novelty toy. I was so freezing cold despite wearing thermals in a heavy robe that I forgot to post online that we weren't doing a show yesterday. I forgot to tell Sebastian Vupper, who was scheduled to do his first past Inside the Present segment from his new home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All I could think of was getting back to bed and uh, turning on heating pads. Of course, when I did, then I started burning up again, and the same pattern kept repeating itself all day yesterday and into the evening. But my fever broke, I don't know, like around 8 or 9 o'clock last night. I tested negative for COVID, and here I am. But yeah, great weekend until I, it was over and I thought I was reinfected with COVID or maybe just suffering from some symptoms of long COVID. More important than any of that, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell. 
When we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? People really like this question from hell. We're yeah, this is really a good, good one. Yeah, it is yeah, a really good when one. When there's like a noun as the response. Oh, like, look at you. It's easier to think a, of. Yes. I, I know this because I am really bad at thinking of answers and also questions. So Yeah, the, <laughs> the biggest mistake you make in a question is to put a negative in it to say, what do you not want to do? That's always a huge mistake. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, or you can send an email to me at chuck at thisishell.com. Our Facebook page is located at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you can tweet at us at thisishellradio. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's shows when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell. Following a brand new moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin, during this week's moment, Jeff spills the secret version of Victoria and Abdul, which is a movie I really, really don't want to see. If your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is How Stuff, the t-shirt, the trucker, or winter caps, the coffee mug, the face covering, the face mask, the This Is How Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from this century as well as the tote bag. Yet, there's a This Is Hell tote bag, which is really disappointing. You can find all that stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Lindsay has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is the late chef... Anthony Bourdain's go-to foods for recovering from a hangover. According to a story at mashed.com by Jennifer Matthews. This is the second week in a row we've had a hangover cure from mashed.com. Lindsay, have you ever been to that website? I have not. Neither have I, other than getting hangover cures. (laughs) Just want to make sure people- What is it for? I have no idea, people. This is not an endorsement of that website. It sounds, I would guess mashed potato recipes. That's what I was thinking too, or just things mashed (laughs) together in general. Uh, well, I'll have to look into this. Uh, Matthews writes, Bourdain had a reputation for partying. Although he kicked a heroin and cocaine addiction, Bourdain drank alcohol when filming his shows. Matthews then quotes Bourdain, writing in his memoir, Kitchen Confidential, quote, Most people who kick heroin and cocaine have to give up on everything. Maybe because my experiences were so awful in the end, I've never been tempted to relapse. You see me drink myself stupid on my show all the time, and I have a lot of fun doing that. I feel so, like I'm like imagining him saying that and not imagining me ever reading that on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing sounds like he's sad. Yeah, I'm it trying to put it in that yeah. emotion. <laughs> it is sad. It is. R.I.P. Anthony Bourdain. Matthews reports that in an interview on TikTok, Bourdain shared his go-to hangover cure, which begins with taking aspirin followed by a cold Coke. Bourdain explains... Once the nausea and self-loathing abate, Matthews adds, Bourdain craved spicy foods. A popular style of cuisine from southwest China, Sichuan is known for its bold, spicy flavors using garlic, chili peppers, and Sichuan peppers. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sichuan peppers in many dishes, according to the New York Times. That makes this week's hangover cure. Anthony Bourdain's hangover cure, which was Szechuan food and an ice-cold Coke or whatever cola you prefer. Do you like cola of any kind, Lindsay? Not really. 
Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it either. I love ice cold soda uh, for you folks on the coast and inexplic- inexplic- uh, inexplicably in St. Louis and Milwaukee too, or ice cold pop as it's mostly known here in Chicago and where I grew up in East Detroit. But Coke is awful, unless you get it with real cane sugar, H.O. in Mexico style. For me, pop with cane sugar is way better than when it comes with corn syrup or some other artificial sugar substitute. But I've pretty much kicked the pop habit. That said, I often crave an ice-cold pop. And if I drink one... I know I will be right back at drinking them more regularly. For me, there's definitely something very addictive about drinking pop, which is frightening and might explain why Anthony Bourdain, who was a heroin and cocaine addict and then couldn't give up drinking, still loved ice-cold Coke. And now a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. Star writes to us, saying, Greetings, Chuck. I've been a listener for, gosh, several years now. Time sure is weird. Yes, and definitely with COVID, it's definitely weird. Anyways, I've, I'm extremely interested in the remote job for helping produce the show. I understand a decent amount of random bits and bobs of tech and audio. I'm eager to learn how to help things work, and quite frankly, I kind of really could use a job. Your time reading my ramblings is appreciated. Hope you are not doing too Awfully. <laughs> this is kind of the assumption I always am. Though this is hell, so I can't say I'd be surprised if you were. Excited to hear back from you, Star. So thank you, Star. I really appreciate it. And if anyone is interested in being a producer on the show, running the board as Lindsay is doing right now, and physically being here at least one day a week for a three-hour shift beginning at around 9.30 in the morning, or if you are not in the area and uh, just are interested in this remote work, email me at chuckatthisishell.com and we'll go from there. I have learned over the last few weeks that we have not been as clear as we need to be when it comes to asking for your support at thisishell.com when you click on support or by becoming a uh, subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. First, our goal is to have enough resources to completely update our site so every interview we have ever done, every show we have ever recorded over the past... 26 plus years is available to everyone for free to not only put all that content into one place and then to stream it on demand for free costs a lot of money we also want to provide producers with a living wage the problem is a living wage lost the fight for 15 a while ago i did a cursory search online and found that the current living wage in chicago according to mit is 19 dollars 23 an hour but there's also something now called the comfortable living wage which in chicago is a little bit over 27 dollars an hour but i don't even know what that is Finally, I want to be clear about something. We are not in any way financed by any of the five radio outlets which play our show on our own Not The Media Radio Network, which is funded completely by you and I just made up. I was asked recently by a listener how much I'm paid by one of the stations carrying our show. And then a second person asked me the exact same question. And I realized we have not been clear in explaining we do not get paid However, we are forever grateful to each of our five outlets for carrying the show and giving us the free exposure we truly appreciate. So please show your support for This Is Hell at our site, thisishell.com, when you click on support, or just by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll tell you what we did on Patreon last week following our conversation with Rob. 
Coming up on the show, the, the system we depend upon, capitalism, is the cause of the pandemic. We will have This Week in Rotten History, and we'll tell you what's happening the rest of this week on This Is Hell, as well as I'll be telling you what happened last week on Patreon. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of absolutely nothing. This is hell, and that's all that seems to matter nowadays, the price of something, not the cost, and that's true value. Just the price. It's what you'd expect in a country so enthralled with capitalism that it has actually put profits before people, before human lives, even during a global pandemic. So expect the same thing when climate change gets a hell of a lot worse than it is already. Returning to This Is How, we are very, very, very happy and excited to have back on the show evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of the new book, The Fault in Our SARS, COVID-19 in the Biden era. Welcome back to This Is How, Rob. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Chuck. So wait, I, I, go, yes. no, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, though, I, I do wish that we were stopped meeting like this. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's been like three years since we first talked. So it's uh, as you were getting at time is bendy. Yeah. And uh, so you're not feeling great. I haven't been feeling great. Everything that in now in mm -hmm. November, I got uh, COVID for the first time. The first time mm -hmm. we interviewed you back in March of two, uh, 2020, you had COVID at that time. Are uh, Every time I have any illness since then, I think it is an outcome of COVID. Do you think that what you have right now, or do you think that me just having flu-like symptoms, do you think that might be related to having COVID? It's hard to say no. Uh, it's hard to say yes, too. I mean, there are always going to be a, different kinds of uh, pathogens and illnesses circulating. COVID's uh, wacky in part because uh, it uh, unfortunately resets a lot of our other body systems in a way that uh, the long COVID that you brought up is uh, uh, very much to the fore. Uh, maybe we'll get into it more, but uh, something like even by the uh, Biden administration's own estimates, something like 36 million Americans suffered some version of long COVID. Anything from just a month after the acute infection to now moving on, uh, you know, year and a half, two years. And you write that the world's governments we learn together treat the capitalism that helps spring the virus out of commoditized forests as realer than the ecologies and epidemiologies upon which the global system depends. To protect that mirage of a difference, each new variant that has since emerged is strangely presented as the beginning of COVID's end, resetting the next round of denialism instead of alerting us that in reality, we are caught in a loop-de-loop -loop of viral evolution. This weekend, uh, Rob, I made the mistake of turning on Fox News for two and a half minutes, and I saw a weather report. And the weatherman was reporting that in over 70 locations on the eastern seaboard of the United States, they uh, had the warmest January on record, and it was really, it was very likely that in February, we are going to have the warmest February on record. They cut back to the anchor's desks, and both were smiling, saying, I love when he gives us good news. Mm. So denialism is such a part of life in the United States and a substantial part of our politics, the backlash against teaching U.S. history, including, you know, genocidal colonialism, slavery, uprisings against slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, uprisings against racialized policing, is yet another example of the willful ignorance grounded in denialism. You point out how capitalism depends upon the very thing that is behind the virus. How can denialism be overcome when it's so comfortable and safe and secure? 
Well, I mean, that that's the that's the particular, I would say it's a particular historical moment we're in, but in addition, that has been uh, long uh, something that capitalism has sold, uh, that as you were getting at, the, there are prices but not costs, and that the costs are borne by people that aren't even human. So all those things are interconnected to each other. Uh, if other people bear those costs that we can uh, dispose and pretend the aren't uh, human like us, then uh, that damage is something that we could set aside. Uh, what's awful about uh, COVID is that we can't even pretend uh, that we aren't doing that to ourselves. I mean, this is the moment where all that damage that we export uh, to the global south, whether it's the damage of climate change or the damage of pandemic or of, of, of newly arisen emerging diseases uh, suddenly come back to us. Um, so that that is the, where we're at now. And we can see, although historically the U.S. has done that, you know, uh, obviously uh, killing Native Americans and enslaving black people. So it is very much part of our DNA. But to, to see that uh, woven into a moment where uh, people's uh, willingness to dismiss the deaths of their own neighbors and the illnesses of their own family members uh, has gotten us to a point where truly, as you're getting at, uh, denialism is a, a central core uh, value. But we're told there is no alternative, that it's capitalism or bust, that we all need to do, all we need to do is like tweak capitalism to make it climate friendly based on consumer choice and one that can live with nature instead of destroying it and unleashing viruses upon us that we never had contact with in the past. Can capitalism be tweaked, be reformed in a way that it is not so destructive that it unleashes climate change and pandemics upon us? Well, my answers are yes and no. Uh, that might be something of a surprise. The yes part is I am in favor of a reformism that somewhat can save us from ourselves. If if that's the plan, if that's any interest in that, I don't think there is. I am uh, somewhat cynical in the notion that often uh, green capitalism is just the, the next generation uh, in greenwashing, uh, an attempt to really just uh, capture the arguments of of their opponents so that they can continue uh, the expropriation uh, both here and abroad. So, uh, but there are, uh, I think uh, people have also come to understand whether through COVID or, or climate change that uh, can't continue on in this direction. Uh, there are people who understand that even though they're also uh, in uh, favor of a, a capitalist intervention on this, uh, I am willing to work with anybody who has some inkling that things must be changed. Uh, so in the context, say, here of the Midwest, be willing to work with people interested in pursuing a regenerative agriculture that moves agriculture away from an industrial uh, uh, operation to uh, recognizing that we do uh, agriculture is a natural economy. It does deal with soil and, and air and living beings. And so is anything in that direction that changes things uh, in that direction would be uh, for the better, for sure. Uh, on the other hand, the, uh, the bigger part of me, the part that wrote this book would say, no, that's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, you can't have a system that depends on uh, 3%, uh, infinite 3% compound growth from here to eternity. I mean, this year, we are in a regenerative planet, but it is a finite planet. And the decision to just uh, treat nature and labor as just another commodity will ultimately lead to uh, the end of our species as we know it. I mean, I think there'll still be people around, but uh, certainly the civilization that we recognize and uh, 
and often appreciate uh, will come to an end. You can't uh, continue to operate in a, in a way that um, uh, expects that uh, you can turn uh, every inch of land in, into a commodity because uh, ultimately uh, that damages the very basis of our, our continuing ourselves as an ecological creature. You quote public health ecologist Roderick Wallace and Deborah Wallace stating, elaborate but basically medicalized tactics of early emergent pathogen detection and early vaccine de development do not constitute a viable public health strategy. Rather, such incessant medicalization indexes and underlying strategy aimed at protecting existing neoliberal land use models and agribusiness structures and most certainly the power relations between them. But do we know how to supposedly feed the world as we're doing right now, supposedly, if you will, outside of a neoliberal land use model and current agricultural structures? If we did change away from the agricultural system that we currently have, how much of a danger would that be to the public if we are indeed feeding the world? Well, if you want to feed the world, there are other models of doing it. I mean, there are millions of people around the world who are doing a more kind of agroecological model that uh, uh, better integrates uh, food production into the local ecologies and the well-being of the communities that uh, grow the food. Uh, so uh, if it's a, again, if you get back to the notion of a surprise, uh, that would be only a surprise because uh, it, it's outside the bounds of a uh, commodity production that expects that uh, anything that's uh, grown or any medicine that's produced uh, has to be something that makes uh, a, a large company uh, a buck. And um, But there have been, not just historically, but ongoing now, uh, all sorts of examples of, uh, of, of uh, local communities and even large communities engaged in practices that uh, uh, can actually grow food at scale and uh, protect the landscape upon which uh, that production depends. Uh, I think some of the examples that come to mind were in my uh, first book, Big Farms Make Big Flu. I think of the uh, uh, farmer cooperatives in Niger. You got 65,000 65, farmers who are in a cooperative, who are uh, uh, they, they have um, uh, all sorts of equipment that's available for everybody. They have uh, uh, financial credit for farmers, um, and they produce food for millions of people. So it, it's not just some sort of localized uh, farmer, or however much we should uh, support those efforts. But in, in addition, you can reorient whole uh, models of social reproduction in a direction that allows you to continue as a species uh, in uh, collaboration with the species upon which we depend for our, our food and uh, ability to, to live on this planet. We are, as you know, we are so influenced by neoliberalism and the hyper-individualization of everything. I think one of the responses that we have seen during COVID and even before COVID to people being upset or unhappy with big agriculture is people started having an individual response and they were starting to having their own individual gardens or getting a hen or whatever those individual uh, concepts were. But I didn't really hear as much talk about cooperatives. How much does neoliberalism, how does that, how much of that hyper individualism undermine our ability to have our own response to COVID and to, instead of thinking about things individually, thinking about things in a collective, like in the Niger uh, example of cooperative farming? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I mean, part of it is, uh, you know, well, I want to take a step back and say, like, uh, you know, when we first uh, met in March 2020, and then later, uh, when the, the first COVID book came out, Dead Epidemiologists, 
you know, 2020 had a particular moment to it. Uh, you know, uh, we all hated Trump, uh, leftists and liberals alike, and we all had to uh, we all largely still uh, battened down uh, the hatches against COVID, and we were all still had a lot of questions about COVID. And in 2023, we're in a different moment entirely. Like everyone is now something of a COVID expert. Uh, and I'm being somewhat snarky, but at the same time, I recognize people's experience as they go through a pandemic and, and uh, come up with uh, their ways of, of, to, of surviving and uh not just physically, but uh, emotionally. But at the same time, we have many liberals. I mean, not all of them, but they now back the the Biden's efforts to end COVID as a phenomenon, uh, even if they, they're not ending COVID as a public health crisis. And then uh, many on the American left, uh, which in my view are often more American than left, and this speaks to the your question, have basically fallen in with what I call the health libertarians and uh, and some even fallen into COVID denialism because they're they're done with it. I understand. I'm exhausted as anybody else with it. And the notion is, this is not working for me. Uh, and in some ways, uh, both the Biden administration and the employers maneuvered people in a way that they could not survive uh, COVID uh, uh, in in a communal fashion. All the efforts, the Paycheck Protection Programs, the eviction moratoriums that have been, that was stripped away in such a way that everybody was dumped out back into the marketplace. And if you wanted to survive, you had to go back to work. And in, in that way, even if it involved exposing yourself to, to COVID, as uh, millions uh, were following all those efforts to strip those things away. So you're absolutely right. Uh, you have a, a neoliberal paradigm that could not deal with uh, uh, a national crisis. And you think that things like war and pestilence were the things in which a country gets together. And other than, um, um, you certainly are, are, are gearing up for the war part, uh, you know, whether in China, Ukraine, but the, the, the pestilence part, we utterly failed on that notion that we, we do not uh, even, I mean, during COVID, uh, the practice of public health really took a beating and even the very concept of public health, the notion that our well-being depends on the well-being of not only our neighbors, but people across the country. And uh, all of us uh, are uh, American to a fault, even those uh, us, of us ostensibly in the opposition. And we take on uh, into the bedrock of our firmware, as it were, in, into our ways of thinking about things. Uh, we assimilate the assumptions uh, of the empire we reject. And so our task at hand is to basically peel that away, unplug out of those things and try to um, plug into ethos and ways of thinking and being that uh, do not accept that as uh, the primary assumption. You also write that when Biden finally contracted COVID in July 2022, showing up to work maskless while infected, CDC Director Janet Walensky took to the airwaves that, yes, the president would be treated with precautions above and beyond what the CDC recommended for the American people. After all, the Americans the administration abandoned are the labor force that chooses to go to work sick or alongside sick co-workers, and the CDC is just accommodating them. How much is that the worker's choice? How much are workers choosing to go to go to work sick or along be alongside sick coworkers? Are are employers protecting workers who do not want to go to work sick or work alongside sick workers? We are employers giving workers a choice. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, uh, you know, so the the big picture is you had the political class. They took uh, notes from employers. I mean, I mean, literal notes. So you had uh, uh, Delta CEO 
uh, write a letter to the CDC demanding that the quarantine for COVID be reduced from 10 days to five. And uh, uh, signed on to that was Carlos Del Rio, who's uh, Carlos Del Rio, who was the president, is the president of the Infectious Disease Society of America. He's uh, down in Emory University across the street from the CDC. And he signed on as a paid consultant of Delta Airlines. So this is where science meets uh, capitalism in very uh, intimate terms, uh, demanding that the quarantine period be rolled back from 10 days to five. There's absolutely no scientific basis of it at all. You have people in, who are, most people are infectious, yes, in the first five days, but you have that long tail afterwards. Uh, there's some recent research that came up that showed that uh, even 20% of people still are registering positive on their rapid antigen tests 14 days uh, from their infection period. So what you're doing is basically uh, sending that long tail back into work to uh, basically infect other people or infect customers or infect. Uh, uh, the point, of course, is, is there are some things more important than the American health and well-being, and that is uh, American uh, American profit. And so uh, this was very much a calling uh, to the Biden administration that they had to get up back up to speed in terms of uh, dealing with employer uh, uh, employer necessities. And so uh, from there and then on, it was uh, fast forward in terms of returning uh, full reopening of the American society, whatever COVID was doing as a pathogen. Um, and you can see it played out. Um, there are passages in the book I describe uh, uh, where I'm quoting um, workers at meatpacking factories uh, who were, of course, hit early on, but uh, uh, whatever uh, interventions were made by OSHA uh, were largely ignored. And uh, even to the present day, uh, you have still COVID circulating there and uh, mask use uh, minimal. Uh, so uh, for the most part, uh, largely the um, staying at home and um, and uh, commuting uh, remotely is for the professional managerial class. And uh, you know, once vaccines came in for them, then uh, uh, they sent everybody else back to work. Uh, and of course, most jobs uh, aren't like that. Uh, I quote some of the research that explains the percentage of, of people who, uh, who, who are allowed to uh, commute remotely. Um, but for the most part, uh, our so-called essential workers uh, are not treated very well. They're uh, sent back in uh, to continue to accumulate the damage of a, of a pathogen that still infects uh, uh, one and a half million to four million people uh, a week across the world and kills 500 million Americans a day. You write with a defeat of the Build Back Better agenda, one of his own making. U.S. President Joe Biden announced that any agenda leaning politically left was over. How do you see the failure of Build Back Better, President Biden's fault? Because everybody else would state that it was because of the Republican opposition, as you know, we've been repeatedly told. Why right. do you believe this was Biden's fault and not the Republican Party's? Well, yes, I mean, certainly it's the Republican Party. I mean, they're insane. But uh, uh, but they offer, um, you know, those the two parties. And I do understand there are differences between them, but those two parties are engaged in a kayfabe, the kind of wrestling storyline in which uh, one pretends to be the opposition, the, the noble opposition against the hated Republicans, uh, at least from the standpoint of the uh, 
the liberal perspective. And um, at the same time, though, uh, they're very much both creatures uh, of capitalism and are uh, interested in catering to it as a uh, system. And, um, you know, Bill Back Better was a kind of extension, uh, and I write about this in the book here. Uh, the first piece in the book is uh, written in November 2020. So this is uh, right after um, uh, Biden's elected. And so we're looking at what they're going to be doing for COVID. And you look at their plan, there's some um, uh, interesting stuff in there, some good stuff in there. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, um, you know, uh, referring back to kind of almost uh, Rooseveltian kind of large scale intervention that would have been necessary to actually bring COVID under control. But even uh, some of the things they offered had no chance of actually uh, controlling COVID. So they offered, for instance, hiring 100,000 uh, community health workers to go door to door and and make sure people are OK and testing on the and also uh, providing them uh, with medicine if they needed it. And that was, um, you know, even uh, that was going to be nowhere near enough to in terms of uh, controlling COVID. So uh, even by then, uh, at that time, I understood that uh, this was more uh, show than anything, uh, although I hoped uh, that they were going to actually follow through with some of this stuff, if anything, to demonstrate to the American people that you, you don't need Trump's malignant negligence as a response to COVID. You don't just let people die. You actually do something about it. But, uh, you know, post uh Inauguration, um, uh, Biden's itching to get out of it. I mean, if you remember, he was just like, uh, July 4th is going to be our Independence Day in which we're going to get out of COVID. And so May of 2021 there, uh, when the vaccine is out, the CDC moves in the direction of saying uh, uh, those who are vaccinated don't have, need a mask. And that basically starts the end of the, of the ball game, in part because they basically... Uh, basically declared, uh, um, you know, that uh, you, you, you don't need a mask and whether or not you're vaccinated, because it really puts um, business owners uh, or employees in a position where they're not going to ask someone who comes in to show their vaccination card, um, whether or not they're masked. So that was like the beginning of the end. So all right from the beginning, even before inauguration, uh, there was, uh, you know, it's more of a, a, a structural moment moment rather than uh, Biden himself. I mean, uh, I think we've talked about this in the past. We talked about cycles of accumulation. We talked about how uh, the U.S. seems to be on its far side of, uh, of accumulation, where uh, instead of the front end where you're churning um, money into capital and, and building empire, you're on the back end of it where you're turning capital back into money. So this is why, you know, in part uh, during the pandemic, we have more billionaires created in the, than ever before. Uh, it's really about uh, sucking off on the last of the public commons. The empire is not in a position to build commons. It's about stripping them out and and uh, making money off it. And, and you know, their environmental versions of this is fracking, polluting people's water. I mean, you know, you're you're down to just like stripping out the the very uh, uh, infrastructure and and natural base upon which uh, we have a country. So in that sense, uh, it's not Biden's fault because he's merely a, an historical personage, uh, personage that's expressing the historical moment. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the Rooseveltian, uh, it was more Rooseveltian bunting uh, on, on, an, on austerity uh, a, a parade float. I mean, they were they were never really comfortable with that, and uh, and they you know triggered right back into the uh, what was has been the 
uh, the American momentum uh, over the last 40, 50 years, which is just uh, to strip that out. I mean, you know, what kind of uh, example are you going to provide if you actually continue to have an eviction moratorium? I mean, that's just, uh, you know, you can't stand that at all. So uh, um, so any all the things that uh, the U.S. Congress barely passed to help Americans had profound impact on people's well-being, uh, you know, lifted uh, people out of poverty, but also... Uh, was very much objected to to the employer by the employer class who wanted people back to work, wanted a large uh, reserved army of labor, and uh, so there that uh, it's that uh, those objectives in that context that uh, uh, commands uh, uh, Biden and uh, and the Democrats and the Republicans is. Any, because this is a, a, a discussion that we've had with the economist Dean Baker in the past, that we mm-hmm. uh, far too often exaggerate the power of the presidency, and when it comes to influencing the economy, is any president, whoever is in office, limited to any extent when it comes to the way they can respond to a pandemic? Are the shortcomings in preparation and response not the fault of an individual, even if that individual is the president of the United States? but a larger, more systemic issue that no one person, even if they are president, can overcome. Yeah, I mean, I yes and no. I mean, I, I if you notice in this book, uh, this COVID book, I am a lot more um, sharper in my criticisms of individuals. Uh, I mean, I do certainly take a systemic structural view of things, um, but, uh, you know, some of the responses got me fighting mad about uh, uh, the responses to COVID and the, uh, you know, I, I uh, was very particular about celebrating the deaths of right-wing uh, talk show hosts um, who were very much particular about gauging thousands, if not millions, of, of their listeners in denialism and, in effect, sent them to their uh, their listeners to their deaths. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, I'm, I'm quite uh, upset with the... Uh, the cadre of public health liberals who, uh, in return for presidential access, have basically destroyed the basis of, of our own field, uh, public health and epidemiology. Um, so I, I, I do take people to task because people do have choices. There is agency. You can say no. Uh, and people aren't just uh, robots that are being bashed around by you know history. I mean, uh, I, I do believe that uh, although there is historical mo- momenta and, and incredibly difficult to get out from underneath, we do have the capacity to to change gears and go in a different direction. And I have actually great faith in the coming generation. Uh, you know, you you uh, whether you uh, watch them on TikTok or in Twitter or anything, uh, uh, you know, this next generation's base, they they know a lot of things about uh, uh, what's going on. They're very, very much more clear about their understanding about the state of things and. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I think, um, I do have faith in, in peoples around the world, uh, although it is a, a terrible historical moment, uh, to see through this and to act in global solidarity and to work through, uh, to get us out from underneath the, the worst of damage. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. I mean, you know, the house just, uh, passed a, uh, uh, you know, a declaration against the horrors of socialism and, uh, you know, in part that really speaks that they're gearing up for a considerable uh, uh, backlash and, and beat down. But on the other hand, it speaks to how scared they are, because like if you're in control, you have no you have no interest in, in passing those kinds of things. I mean, uh, uh, so I think uh, they're getting uh, quite wary over the fact that even here in the U.S., uh, despite the success in being able to divide and conquer the American people, uh, along the culture war lines, uh, 
that also uh, all sorts of people are, are finding themselves uh, in, a, in a position of not being able to pay uh, for the basics. I mean, it's not just about eggs. Uh, it's a you know there's there isn't a single spot in America in which uh, minimum wage pays for uh, for uh, rent, and uh, I mean you you are basically setting up a country, uh, turning a country in, into a tinderbox, and so um, you know th that offers a terrible possibilities in whatever directions that might go in. Would it be good to have a socialist revolution? The answer is yes, but there's dangers in all sorts of directions. The capacity of fascism uh, to recruit uh, working people to engage in punching down on those who have less power uh, is also palatable right now. Um, so what I'm getting at is history is not etched in stone. It's very much uh, open to uh, moving in one direction to the other. People who do make personal decisions to uh, sell out uh, everyday people uh, for access or money uh, should be uh, demonstrably uh, re uh, rejected. And uh, at the same time, we need to be open to the possibility of talking to people that we don't particularly like or, or, or know. Uh, in the book, I may, I'm very clear about uh, that it's uh, an atrocious thing to bash people who did not get vaccinated. I think it's a total mistake. Uh, I think uh, the failure to vaccinate is also a failure of vaccine access. Uh, the Biden administration took the strategy of bashing the red states, the kind of mirror image of the what Trump did to the blue states in terms of COVID, uh, and basically uh put the continuing damage and deaths upon uh, people who were left uh, left to die. And uh, the government decided that we're not going to engage in a public health program. We're just going to uh, uh, say that it's an individually based to get back to your previous uh, point about uh, 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 neoliberal individuality and uh, basically washed its hands of its responsibility. In that case, it's both structural and a personal decision uh, that our uh, the leaders of our political class took. And uh, we have arrived at this horrible moment where we're all exhausted from what's going on. And you have everyone from uh, far left to right who basically decided that COVID's over. And we're going to march on whatever the state of the actual pandemic is. In, in the midst of all of this, and I know that there's a lot of shocking news that's coming out of the response to COVID, but in the midst of all of this, I just found out in January of this year, Medicare stopped covering blood tests. And so now when you go in as a Medicare patient, they give you a questionnaire to determine what your physical problems might be, may or may not be. So what to you explains how we have a healthcare system that doesn't become more robust during a pandemic, mm. it makes people even more vulnerable. That's right. I mean, um, I mean, the damage that, uh, you know, we've taken, I mean, you expect, uh, um, you know, at, at such a moment that we would actually uh, provide what was necessary. I mean, it, it goes all the way from the beginning. If you remember, uh, having our, our uh, emergency staff have to wear garbage bags as PPE, um, you know, the failure to deliver vaccines, uh, even within this country. I mean, presently, something like 16 percent of the pop uh, elig eligible population is up uh, date on their uh, booster vaccines, uh, which uh, the administration is pointing out it, uh, is uh, these uh, boosters are the reason why we get to 
drop everything else, including uh, the mass mandates and the sheltering in place and all the other things, uh, all the non-pharmaceutical interventions that we had previously been uh, been using. Um, but the hospitals took a beating. Uh, I mean, when you're on a uh, both uh, private and public hospitals are uh, you know only being uh, somewhat funded by uh, federal programs. And so there was a lot of effort on trying to uh, have things like plastic surgery to make up the uh, um, what, what was not being paid for. And, uh, you know, during COVID, uh, those um, uh, funds went, in, uh, those revenue went into decline. So uh, during a pandemic, you had some hospitals have less funding um, and some uh, and have having to fire nurses during a pandemic. I mean, it was getting so bad that uh, one in five nursing staff uh, left uh, during the pandemic. And the pandemic has been an obvious critical source of demoralization for um, health staff. So, you know, and I think uh, there's been op-eds recently about this, about the it isn't just the damage of pandemic and the failure to come up with this, uh, to, to follow up and help out. But uh, in addition, uh, the message to um, emergency staff and, and, and nurses and doctors in all departments is that um, uh, the health institutions are largely organized around making profit, profit first. I mean, everybody knows that, but at least we could we could at least pretend that when we showed up, uh, we had enough support to actually help people get the tests and uh, medicine they need. And now we see that that is increasingly becoming difficult and our uh, health staffs are, are coming to grasp this as being a, a, a foundational part of, of medicine. And I can tell you, I heard from hospital staff last year when I was in the uh, had a major surgery and I was in the hospital mm -hmm. for 15 days and had to go back for a couple more surgeries. I still have one more to go. Every person, every person who is a nurse or any person in healthcare at that hospital, every one of them had a nightmare story about what mm -hmm. their hosp hospitals had to go through and the dependence that they now have on uh, things like travel nurses. We are speaking to evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of The Fault in Our SARS, COVID-19 in the Biden Era. Follow Rob on Twitter at Farming Pathogen. Support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber to his Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. This is Rob's fifth appearance on This Is Hell, and you can find those conversations at thisishell.com when searching on his name. So I definitely want to talk before we go about zero, zero COVID. You write mm -hmm. in a jaw-dropping op-ed, Biden COVID-19 advisory board members, bioethicist Ezekiel Emanuel and epidemiologist Michael Osterholm argued that China's then-successful zero COVID program represented a danger to the world. Psychologists described such an inability to admit a grave loss spinning failure onto others instead as grandiose narcissism. China's zero COVID campaign has been reported as authoritarian, limiting rights, and sparking unprecedented protests within China. Can government-imposed control over a population to protect it from a public health concern take place that does not lead to uprisings like these or the protests we saw against public health precautions here in the states? Can a plan be implemented that both protects the public and does not limit their rights or at least give the perception it is limiting rights? Yes, the answer is yes. And that involves uh, gaining the trust of, of your populace. Uh, you don't lie to them. You treat them with respect. You send people uh, door to door, uh, even though, you know, you'll have people shout at them to go F off um, the first 17 times. 
um, you start to build uh, rapport that uh, leads to uh, increasing respect. But, you know, here in the U.S., the American people are in grave distrust of uh, even the very notion of a society and uh, a government. And, uh, you know, if government is in the business of protecting the rich in a way that uh, allows them uh uh, you know, if uh, to get away out from underneath the the needs of uh, everyday people, then yes, they object to that. Um, zero COVID was very successful in China up to a point, and then uh, and then it fell apart. And, um, and my interpretation of this goes along this way: that there were countries across the world, and not just China, but uh, countries that are very politically different from each other. Uh, New Zealand comes to mind, Vietnam, Iceland. Uh, Spain, uh, Uruguay, uh, Panama—they all—they they come to mind in terms of being able to do a a, a full press um, intervention, both uh, uh, pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical together, uh, in a way that protected their populations. So across political programs, uh, you know, there's some strange notion that you know the whole point of governance is to protect your own people. And so there were great, great efforts to do so. And um, on the other hand, in the neoliberal regimes, they basically said, let it rip. COVID was able to spread, evolve one variant after another. And in effect, the neoliberal countries served, laid siege to those countries that tried to keep COVID out. Uh, so they were catapulting dead bodies and new variants uh, over the town wall. Uh, in a way that uh, a besieged country uh, or besieged town doesn't do very well at some point. At some point, your food runs out and your patience and all that. And uh, one country after another started to basically fall apart. And uh, those efforts to, you know, do uh, uh, lockdowns or sheltering in place or, or mass mandates uh, went by the wayside. After two years, it was too much. It happens to be China was the last major uh, stronghold in this regard. And, uh, you know, they uh, China was berated for doing zero COVID. I mean, I described the New York Times efforts, particularly the business section, uh, you know, one article after another about the damage that zero COVID did. They were public health uh, efforts were compared to uh, uh, Nazi efforts and uh um, but they managed to keep, uh, you know, millions of people from dying. And, you know, I mean, if 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 1.1 million Americans died here, the equivalent there would have been like 4.6 million uh, Chinese. So the Chinese decided not to kill their own people. And this was very upsetting here in the U.S. because the U.S. expected uh, in the expected the Chinese would continue to act as our, our factory floor. Like during a pandemic, they would send people, uh, the Chinese population out uh, about to continue to produce things for uh, the, the US and, and other countries. And uh, the fact that the Chinese decided to do something uh, more in favor for their population was, was a violation of what the US thought uh, and other countries thought was that uh, the China China's role as a, a tributary economy, and so uh, this has been uh, uh, along with uh, you know Taiwan and and uh, you know weather balloons and all this. Uh, the, the, this has all been part and parcel of kind of the in, interimperial rivalry that arises, and this is what uh, geographer David Harvey writes. Uh, it arises when. 
um, devaluation sets in. Uh, when you have uh, you know a, a terrible uh, you know capitalist moment and the global economy isn't doing well, uh, all the different uh, uh, large countries try to dump off the worst of damage on each other. And so uh, the U.S. did not like uh, the way that the Chinese were uh, protecting themselves. And so this, in part, uh, fed the flames of a rivalry that uh, had been previously a, a source of increasing um, uh, cooperation. Um, so the same goes in the, the direction of Russia as well. Uh, so we have here uh, COVID being just another uh, form in which uh, those rivalries are intensifying. So, um, you know, the attack, uh, the article that you read, um, uh, Osterholm and Ezekiel, Emmanuel, uh, they were in uh, very much acting in, in, in that spirit, uh, not only to attack the Chinese, but to attack the notion of zero COVID or anything like it so that it, it is not followed here in the U.S. So if, for instance, uh, I'm part of the People CDC. Uh, we try to um, uh, suggest that uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, mixed interventions be pursued in a way that we drive COVID under its rate of replacement. Uh, the way you can deal with COVID is not just declaring that it's over, but actually driving it into uh, uh, extirpation, uh, ex uh, local extinction. And but if we were to uh, uh, propose policies, and we do, but propose policies of a uh, uh, full spectrum intervention, then that puts us something uh, near in the camp of what the uh, or what uh, our our people who reject what we're doing would call a more Chinese-like approach. So uh, that um, op-ed was directed not only against the Chinese but against uh, the Biden opposition here that objected to his role in putting another half million Americans in the ground. You also point out that reporter Apoorva Mandavelli, uh, for one, wrote a Times, New York Times series of news analysis declaring it's the nature of good scientific and public health practice that led the United States to its COVID trap. In January 2021, Mandavelli uh, described the CDC's methodical and meticulous approach as the cause for delays in public health response that are now being replaced by faster, if also less supported, decision-making. By August 2022, the CDC rearranging the deck chairs agreed such meticulous ridiculousness, the source of its failures. Was the problem, by your estimation, the CDC's meticulousness, or is this just an implication that it's a government bureaucracy problem, that the private sector could have handled this better without any kind of government interference? Oh, this is all, it, 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 you know, I think both choices are somewhat ridiculous. I mean, you had uh, countries uh, that had much less wealth and uh, much less uh, government um that uh, even before the vaccine showed up, were able to uh, come up with a plan and implement it in a way that protected their people. Um, uh, so uh, this notion that somehow it was uh, CDC's meticulousness that led to their failures is ridiculous. I mean, you don't have to have uh, an understanding of all the signs of the nature of COVID uh, as a virus or as a uh, epidemiological phenomenon to actually act in service of your people. Um, you, you can... Uh, uh, act on the side of the precautionary principle and engage in uh, uh, be, uh, um, interventions and uh, mandates that uh, protect people enough to get us out from underneath uh, the, uh, the, uh, the outbreak for you know anything from four months to a year. 
I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, we're, we are in, in year, what year is this? Uh, you know, uh, three, uh, now, um, and, uh, you know, it's just like, if you actually put all your time and attention on actually driving COVID underneath its rate of replacement, then you, we would have been out this, out of this much earlier. Um, there was no effort. And we speak about vaccines as being the tools by which we control the outbreak. Um, but then there was all this effort, uh, led by Bill Gates and, uh, largely supported by, you know, the pharmaceutical industry he, he was representing to basically make sure that vaccines weren't, uh, made available to the rest of the world. I mean, if you're saying vaccination is the tool by which, uh, you're going to stop this outbreak and then make sure that, uh, most of the world can't get access to it. I mean, what are you saying? You're not interested in actually stopping the outbreak. It returns to where we started and that's, uh, some things are more important than the well-being of and health of uh, the world's population. And that is uh, capitalism is treated as realer uh, than the ecologies and epidemiologies that it depends on. And now I want to get to my very favorite questions. Rob, Illinois Governor um, J.B. Pritzker announced the state's public health emergency will end on May 11th, 2023, aligning the state with the federal government's decision to end mm-hmm. the national public health emergency. That's still three months away. That's like a mm-hmm. whole season away. What could change in that time? And when it comes to public health concerns, why make a statement that's 93 days from now, uh, uh, like I was saying, a a time that's longer than a whole season, that a health emergency will somehow end on this magic date? What is this about? Well, because they tried to do that before and it didn't go very well. So as I was saying before, when uh, Biden said uh, July 4th, 2021 was their day of independence, nobody really took that seriously. Uh, He was just kind of... uh, uh running it up the flagpole and it just totally fell apart so i think this has been uh, the denouement of a very long effort uh going back to uh february 2021 of planning out our exit plan uh so you know if you see all those things began to be stripped out so um very much signaling to the american people that uh we were going to exit covid um come hell or high water um, you know, it could be that COVID is, is, uh, turning back, it, but that's not necessarily the case, right? I mean, uh, when we, when we allowed people who vaccinated to go maskless, this was at a time when everybody knew that the Delta variant was doing considerable damage in India and would end up here. Um, so I think, um, there is, uh, basically a decision and agreement across the political class, it's bipartisan, uh, employer and politician uh, to basically uh, run out the clock on this, on whatever the state of the of the virus. Last week, we spoke with philosopher Lewis R. Gordon, author of Fear of Black Consciousness. Lou believes the government intentionally chose to call staying six feet apart, wearing masks, not being indoors with large crowds, that it was called purposely social dis- distancing and not what it really was, physical distancing, because neoliberalism always wants us to socially distanced to make Thatcher's claim that there is no society a fact. However, those safety protocols are not about social distancing, as uh, Lou argued. We weren't being advised to go offline or stop making phone calls or however we socially interact nowadays. What we were being asked to do was to engage in physical distancing. One, What impact, if any, do you think calling it the more accurate physical distancing rather than social distancing would have had on the way reactionaries responded to these safety protocols? 
Yeah, well, that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I go back and forth between uh, objecting to, you know, notions that, you know, choices, discursive choices are enough, like uh, social, physical distancing. I mean, the, the issue is that we didn't do anything in terms of truly uh, intervening on a pandemic uh, in a way that would have uh, uh, driven uh, SARS-2 uh, away. Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, I'm also understanding that at the level of operationalizing uh, public health, that indeed those kind of choices would be important to think through. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think uh, largely it, we didn't do very well starting off with Trump. I mean, what a, what a terrible way to go. What a start. I mean, uh, I mean, we lost uh, nine months to, to the start. And once COVID's in, it's going to be around for a while. Um, and it didn't help at, at all uh, that, of course, that uh, our, our public health program uh, was in, in um, you know, decline um, at, from the things they brought up about the neo, uh, neoliberal moment and the individuality. And uh, um, so these are, you know, bigger structural stuff. So, um, um, and, uh, you know, and I understand, uh, you know, there's a leftist uh, libertarian bent that objected to, uh, you know, almost the kind of Foucauldian interventions and control of trying to get people like this would be just the next practicing to get us used to being uh, cut off from each other and and commanding commanding us and things like that. And uh, this is where we turn back to the notion of uh, uh, true public health as being uh, uh, needing the trust. Like trust is an, an epidemiological variable. It's like you you need to have that in, uh, to engage in whatever decision you make. That's the first thing. The second thing is you can't dither. Uh, dithering leads to uh, a disaster. Like if you are not sure how to intervene, I mean, if you're, whatever choice you make, you have to uh, get on it quick and stick to it. Um, and uh, across multiple, the two administrations, um, it was all this half-ass measures that, uh, in fact, actually plays into the hands of the of the virus itself because. Uh, you put pressure on the virus, uh, it evolves in response to it, but you also still leave openings for it to now take its new adaptations and, and spread from person to person. Um, so uh, long story short, I would say that, um, yeah, calling it something can can make difference, but I think there are, there are much bigger things in play that uh, we totally dropped the ball on. You know, our final question for each and every one of our guests, we're speaking with evolutionary epidemiologist Rob Walsh, is author of Fault in Our SARS, uh, COVID-19 in the Biden era. And again, you can follow Rob on Twitter at Farming Pathogen, and you can support Rob's work by becoming a subscriber to his Patreon at patreon.com slash Rob Wallace. We uh, finish every one of our interviews with the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. But <laughs> Rob, I like you so much, I have two for you. So <laughs> we are often asked, what will we need to sacrifice to fight climate change? What are we currently sacrificing to in the name of capitalism? Would a future fighting climate change lead to more sacrifices than we already make under capitalism? That's a great question. Um, I think we have to sacrifice our notion that we can um, continue to be the, the people we recognize in the mirror. Uh, that's a hard one. Uh, like it involves, uh, as I was saying earlier in our conversation, unplugging out of the assumptions of, of uh, much of the uh, 
I call it empire, but uh, you know the 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 mode of uh, production or the ways we uh, uh, are able to uh, persist as a as a as a culture, um, and that's a hard one. I mean, I there are many examples around the world to look upon. Um, you know, when you bring up uh, indigenous cultures or you uh, bring up their examples of socialist states that, for better and for worse, uh, figured out a few things on ecologies. Uh, you draw from all those uh, as a possible uh, way forward. Um, and that's going to be a hard, uh, very extremely difficult uh, road to to go on. And, uh, you know, there are dangers of uh, appropriation. Uh, you know, people are, are certainly worried about these days. But uh, I think we're at a moment where uh, while we must do the things necessary to survive day to day in a, in a capitalist country, um, that doesn't mean that uh, we can't also be in the uh, be in the business of um, uh, unpacking those presumptions um, and uh, moving in a direction to become uh, a different people. Um, you know, it's so much still very much part of a of being human, of course, but uh, to unlock the uh, presumptions uh, that uh, you know make up the bedrock of our notions of what what is real and what is necessary. You were making the point earlier that the discursive things that uh, occurred during the earliest stages of the pandemic are certainly not as important as the actual responses that the government made when and public health made when it came to COVID. But you mentioned science writer Ed Young's sense of defeat when it comes to COVID. He writes, in 2018, while reporting on pandemic preparedness in the D Democratic Republic of Congo, I heard many people joking about the fictional 15th article of the country's constitution, Debrouillet, Vu, or figure it out yourself. It was a droll and weary acknowledgement that the government won't save you, and you must do, and you must make do with the resources you've got. The United States is now firmly in the figure it out for yourself era of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Sociologist Tressie McMillan Cottom was on our show way back in twenty seventeen to talk about her then just published book, Lower Ed: The Troubling Rise of For Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Chessie told us that under neoliberalism, you're on your own, which sounds a lot like figure it out for yourself and sounds nothing like what we were being told at the beginning of the pandemic ad nauseum, which was we are all in this together. What impact do you think we are all in this together when that was clearly not the case had on the efficacy of the government's response to COVID, if any? Oh, that's very good. Uh, it's a great question. I mean, in part uh, uh, from uh, on the community level, I think that was taken to heart. I think there was considerable effort uh, made at uh, mutual aid um, and also supporting uh, frontline workers, not just uh, materially, but morally. Um, I mean, sometimes it, we look upon this as being um, somewhat ridiculous in, in passing, you know, all the, the pots and pans people uh, hit um you know in the evening you know as a way of uh, supporting but it, it it is those things are emblematic of a desire of a of a large population under siege of all the presumptions that individ individuality is enough that it wasn't that it was necessary to be something else and uh now here on the other end of things we are uh we've gotten to a point where there's such a backlash to even the view that the pandemic was a bad thing i mean uh I mean, for many, it was all just an overreaction on our part. Uh, I mean, that's a total, utter fallacy of fact, but it's also a fallacy of logic. I mean, it's it's an expression of what's called the fallacy of silent evidence. 
I mean, you have more than a, a million Americans died, more than 15 million worldwide. And those are likely underestimates given the measures of excess deaths, uh, in, including those that are killed by COVID in the kind of uh, post-infection phase, the long COVID, you know, the heart diseases, the neurological damage, uh, the collapse immunity. And, uh, you know, all those people were not allowed to testify to what COVID did to them. That's the fallacy of silent evidence, that they were not here to tell us what damage came out of uh, our failure to act accordingly. And, uh, you know, along with all the 36 million Americans uh, with long COVID and, um, you know, uh, uh, this, this um, you know, this damage is going to continue to accrue and uh, it requires us to kind of uh, have having to uh, unpack all the, those assumptions. And that's very difficult at, at a moment when all of us are exhausted from COVID. I mean, I'm tired of it myself, but it's, it's um, you know, this won't be the last of it. I mean, as you very well know, I'll talk, talk now of the avian influenza that I wrote about in my first book. Uh, you know, that's emerging, going mammal to mammal at this point. Um, you know, because we decided not to figure it out this round, because we wanted to wash our hands of it, even uh, at the cost of uh, more than a million Americans. And I can't possibly see how uh, people okay with that, uh, and particularly Republicans make a big deal about being patriotic. I mean, to to dance on the grave of so many of your own countrymen is just uh, extraordinary. But uh, it's not, uh, this is not, isn't the end of it. And our refusal to take that seriously uh, I mean, part of it is that our political class was not capable of turning on the dime necessary to uh, embrace what we need to do to control this outbreak. Uh, and, and in some ways, and I, I've talked about this before, pathogens are something of, our, of a mirror, and we see ourselves as a society in them. And uh, we saw something that we didn't want to see. We saw that we were, we decided that we were going to be incapable of doing something about it. I mean, the richest country in the history of humanity decided that it could not respond to this in a way that small countries elsewhere with so little money were. And uh, that's not gonna go away. I mean, you brought up climate change, you're exactly right. Uh, that requires exactly the, we're all in this together. And the next pandemic that emerges, um, it won't. It's not going to take another hundred years for that thing to, to arrive. It's going to also require us to to do something about it, and not as we are at this point, uh, depend on whether or not you can you can pay for the vaccine. Rob, now everybody knows why you are a listener favorite. I really appreciate you being back on the show. You know I'm going to annoy you with emails in the future <laughs> to have you back on. So thank you so much. Happy New Year. I hope that your 2020 three goes better than 2022 for not only you, but for everybody. Thank you so much for being back on the show. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it as well. Very much. Thanks. All right. Take care. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. If what you just heard from Rob on capitalism being the cause of the pandemic, please show your support for This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Last week on Patreon, we spoke, uh, or last week here on the show, we spoke with uh, philosopher Lewis R. Gordon about his book, Fear of Black Consciousness, and how Lewis explained how we, he never thought of himself as part of a group that others would identify as black until he left his home country of Jamaica and came to the United States, specifically New York City. And I had a similar experience. I knew I had poor vision, obviously, but I didn't know I was grouped in with all of the disabled until I went to a free swimming class my hometown offered for disabled kids. I had no idea that to the rest of the world, all disabilities are the same and all that all disabled people are lumped together as a group. So while Lewis 
gave us a tour of what the black consciousness is and the fear it causes in others as it reveals there is no such thing as racial superiority or inferiority. On Patreon, I titled my monologue Fear of a Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gaptooth Consciousness, a fear that reveals the condescending narcissism of ableism. Also on last week's Patreon podcast, we set the Wayback Machine to 20 years ago to see what the hell we were up to on February 1st, 2003. And what we were up to was talking to someone who had covered the uh, annual, third annual World Social Forum in Porto Alegre, Brazil, which had taken place the previous weekend. Our guest was journalist Jennifer Berkshire, who is covering the forum for Counterpunch. Jennifer is now a podcaster and hosts a show called have you heard where she and scholar Jack Schneider try to fix the nation's public schools one policy at a time? 20 years ago, however, Jennifer was on This Is Hell to tell listeners what the World Social Forum is and what it could be. And what it became was a history-making annual meeting that offers a very different kind of globalization from what is being offered every year at the same time during the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. But the only way you can hear any of that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And when you do become a subscriber, you also get a discount on uh, all of our merchandise as well as access to all of our Patreon uh, shows from the past, like over 350. Plus, we are now announcing our guests first at the site. We're also giving uh, a Patreon, and at Patreon, uh, Patreon patrons are getting... Uh, the first crack at the question from hell. We're adding all sorts of new stuff in the community section, so become a subscriber to stay on top of everything that's happening here on the show. Lindsay, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell. When we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? So over here on Patreon. Yay! Our Patreons are saying what would they like to produce once in a while as a treat once we have taken over the means of production. I don't know. I'm so I'm I'm gonna mess up the patron's name right off the bat. That's okay. Chaff. I don't know. I'm okay. sorry, I don't know how to say your name. Chaff R says Magnets. I'm pretty sure that's the answer. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's a treat, but more we kinda need magnets. I'd more say. magnets, you think? Alright. Like We'll always need those, right? Uh, Steve S. says, Soylent Red, better dead than red? Oh, Question mark? I don't know. That is so gross. No. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Soylent Green? I've not. Don't. It's with uh, Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson, and it's about uh, how... Here, I'll, I'll, I'll spoiler alert for anybody who's never seen it. Soylent Green, the food that they're feeding everybody, is made of people. That's the last line of the movie. Yes, I am familiar with that uh, spoiler, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Is, I hear it's from like a Kurt Vonnegut novel or something. It could the be. I don't know. Story. I, I, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It was horrible. <laughs> is this a new movie or No, old, old movie. And when it came out, it was picked as the worst movie of the year. Hmm. Okay. I might be making up the Kurt Vonnegut thing or not. Who I don't knows? know. I don't know. It's somewhere <laughs> rattling around in there. Uh, okay. What else? So what? when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Now, I'm pretty sure Jeff Dorshin wrote this one, but he also <laughs> answered it. He says, opium for the masses in French tickler suppository oh, form. Man. Talk about a treat. Wow. See, this is what's wow. going on over at Patreon. Wow. Wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good lord. All right. We learned what suppositories were a while back. Yes, so. and uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, over on Patreon, <laughs> it goes a little blue. Okay, next, when we take over the means of production, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Adam A. says, I could definitely stand to treat myself to a few years of unpredict unproductivity, no, that's unproductivity. Yeah, sure. So my answer is going to be nothing. Oh, napping would be good. Napping. We'll be talking about the radical power of napping in the next couple of weeks. So there's another one. Yes. Hanging out. Is that something you produce? Uh, I, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What when we take over the means of production? What can we produce once in a while as a treat? Neil C says. The Barbie and Ken luxury communist playhouse. <laughs> Barbie dressed in Bolshevik red and Ken sporting a gray beard and a manifesto. Uh, so the difficulty with this is I live with somebody who might start working on this project immediately for you. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of Laura's Barbies in her <laughs> office that office. she made. Uh, yeah, she could definitely get that going. <laughs> yeah, That's she... our new merch. <laughs> exactly. We're trying to get Laura a job and also make <laughs> You know, I think we should make Mark's Barbies. That's a great Mark's idea. Mark's Barbies is a good idea. Okay. Also, like voodoo dolls of people we don't like. <laughs> Old Grouch says another life sentence without parole imposed on a former member of the 1%. All right. That's what we can produce once in a while as a sure. treat sure. when we take over the means of production. And Fabio L says one tweet. <laughs> so stupid. <laughs> One tweet we can produce once in a while as a treat. Okay. Nick E. says, what can we produce once in a while as a treat? Dark chocolate truffles. <laughs> All right. I agree we should keep those around. Yes, I do too. Uh, also, dark chocolate peanut butter cups. <laughs> Much better. Ram D., our last response here on Patreon is to our question which is when we take over the means of production what can we produce once in a while as a treat ram d that's not ram dos but <laughs> ram d <laughs> a zeppelin with a balding elon musk painted on it that rains down hair <laughs> that's disgusting that's disgusting well what else are we gonna uh, do with all the hair we lose all the time see that's a good point all right let's we leave it there it. so we've finished all the ones on patreon so far if you're a patreon patron post it over at patreon if you just want to post it on twitter so everybody who follows us on twitter can see it you can post it there or you can post it at our facebook page you can even email it to me at chuck at this is again the person with our favorite answer they get their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. We are going to be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff spills the secret version of Victoria and Abdul. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. On February 8th, 1915, 108 years ago this week, amid a blaze of hype, the film director D.W. Griffith released his three-hour silent epic, I mean white supremacist propaganda movie, The Birth of a Nation, which told the story of two families dealing with the United States Civil War and Reconstruction. Though the film was hailed for its technical virtuosity and innovative storytelling technique, do not notice that the fact in the huge scenes, you will see the cameraman actually operating the cameras on the screen during the movie unintentionally. That's the technical virtuosity that 
the birth of a nation offers. It was also immediately controversial for its extremely racist take on U.S. history, in which slavery was depicted as integral to the genteel traditions of the Old South, while Northern abolitionists stirred up trouble by pushing for change. And white supremacists believe this movie is a recording of actual history to this day. Where it is in far-right communities across the United States, those who are supposedly against critical race theory but are just straight-up racist are probably considering making Birth of a Nation mandatory viewing in all of our schools. In the film, African-American characters were played by white actors in blackface, naturally, because Griffin was so racist he would never even think about paying black people to do well anything. And the African-American characters were depicted as stupid, corrupt, sex-obsessed perpetrators of voter fraud. So it's basically a lot like watching the Fox News Channel. In one notorious scene set in the period of post-war reconstruction, newly elected black politicians, oh, you've got to see this scene, it's, it's disgusting, were seen as grinning caricatures, eating fried chicken and drinking liquor on the floor of a state legislature. In another scene, a so-called renegade former slave terrorized a white woman until she was driven to suicide and was then lynched by members of the Ku Klux Klan, who in the film were depicted as valiant heroes of the South. The birth of a nation was quickly denounced by activists like Booker T. Washington and Jane Addams, and it provoked demonstrations and boycotts by the NAACP and other organizations. But after the film was screened at the White House, it received a ringing endorsement from the white supremacist U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, who called it, quote, like writing history with lightning. Yep, that's how racist the United States was. The president could only ex could, could express complete support for white supremacy not just use dog whistles like President Trump did. Amid all of the public controversy, The Birth of a Nation was a commercial hit. It was credited for resurgence of the KKK and a major boost in its membership. It would also be known as the highest grossing film ever until 1939 when its record was broken by another movie that also romanticized the racist pre-Civil War South, Gone with the Wind. Birth of a Nation also led to a lot of people being inspired to put up horrible statues of Confederate soldiers all over the United States. And that's why they're tearing them down today. And just like any movie today, the message is further reinforced due to spellbinding technical virtuosity as it is known today, special effects. In case you did not know, all the Marvel movies got funding from the Pentagon and they are all pro-military industrial complex propaganda. But that's another story. Also, in Rotten History, February 8th, 1962, 61 years ago this week, as a nationalist war of independence raged in Algeria and as French politicians came to grips with the need to let go of their North African colony, a crowd of leftist demonstrators assembled in Paris to protest the refusal of right-wing paramilitary groups to accept that reality. And I think right-wing paramilitary groups might mean mercenaries hired by the French government, so think of them as Blackwater soldiers of fortune who stopped taking orders from whatever government hired them. The demonstrators, who were defying a curfew, were attacked by French police, who chased them into the nearby Charon subway station of the Paris metro. Eight people were stampeded to death or killed by heavy objects thrown at them by police as they tried to flee down the stairs all because they wanted mercenaries to follow the orders they were given. A ninth victim died later in the hospital. It later emerged that eight of the nine victims in the so-called Sharon massacre had been members of the either labor unions or the French Communist Party. The one exception was a 16-year-old boy. Now that's rotten history. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. 
Lindsay, who are our next guests coming up here on This Is Hell? Tomorrow, we will have Sheila Liming, author of Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. Sheila is an associate professor at Champlain College, coincidentally in, in Burlington, Burlington Vermont, Vermont. Just like our last guest last week. And uh, who's our final guest this week? Our final guest this week will be human rights attorney Nora Erakat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who wrote Iraqat? I, I don't know. Who wrote the Boston Review article "Designing the Future in Palestine"? Palestinian women and feminist organizations are reimagining what liberation can look like beyond national independence. Nora is associate professor at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, in the Department of Africana Studies and the Program in Criminal Justice, and the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. Also coming up this week, we will have, like I said, a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Sebastian Vopper will be giving us a past inside the present on our next show, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth at the end of this week's shows. And uh, this week, our Patreon podcast will be at the same time, 10 a.m., but it's happening on Friday rather than its regular Thursday time slot. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, uh, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsey Gorey for producing. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.